Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, folks. It is December the 1st. It is episode 196. Christmas spirit is in the air. And we've got a very big show for you guys. We are going to be talking to someone. Uh, we've been, you know, th- th- Pete, you set this up. This is your victory lap. Tell us about this interview. Well, thanks, James. I appreciate you giving me credit for um, setting up this interview. All I did was send a Twitter message to, of course, the great James Lindsay, author of Cynical Theories, uh, one of the people behind those academic hoaxes which occurred a few years ago. And we have an awesome chat with him today about postmodernism, critical race theory, where it's going, which he is sort of a little bit optimistic and a little bit pessimistic about, uh, and what it means for society. It's awesome. It goes for 45 minutes. It's a really good chat. Uh, I genuinely think... I genuinely think I cheered him up halfway through because he was getting very pessimistic and then I said, Mm. I'm actually optimistic. So stick around for that. Tell me if I'm just not uh, building myself up too much, which is, uh, you know, it's a lifelong thing that I'm working on, but I think it is a good interview. I think you did build him up, which, you know, that's something you deserve credit for. Maybe he'll go out and and spark up a little bit, but no, it was a really good chat and make sure you have Uh, a listen. If you haven't read the book, read the book. Absolutely, yeah. It is, uh, and it's not just me saying it, as I say in the interview, Time Magazine this week called it one of the best non-fiction books of 2020. Uh, I loved it. I devoured it in two days. It is brilliant. Go out and read it. Cynical Theories and James Lindsay. Awesome, awesome interview. Can't wait for you guys to hear it. Uh, Let's fly through some stories. uh, And, you know, it's a postmodern themed show. We're going to be talking to James Lindsay. And I guess we'll start off with this story on postmodernism. Jordan Peterson his new book has sparked a bit of a, I don't know, civil revolt down at Penguin. Pete, talk us about it. Well, yeah, this is the kind of thing that, of course, it's, it's, it's focusing on this, that the interview is like this woke revolution. Now, Penguin Random House in Canada announced last week was publishing Jordan Peterson's new book, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life, uh, as if 12 wasn't enough. Now there's 24. Um, and, you know, you'd think that any lots of publishing houses would be wanting to publish this book because it's going to be really successful. Um, and that's great for, for them because they like money. But unfortunately, this caused an emotional town hall meeting where several employees of uh, Penguin voiced their, cons- voiced their concerns about the problem. The quote from a report from Vice was that, this is from one employee, he's an icon of hate speech and transphobia and the fact that he's an icon of white supremacy, regardless of the content of his book, I'm not proud to work for a company that publishes him now for his part. Jordan Peterson tweeted out, please, everybody, just leave the Penguin Random employees alone. So he sounds like a real dangerous extremist uh, in that instance. James, what was your view? Uh, I want to read out one quote which was said at the town hall. Um, I'm just going to read it out. The company since June has been doing all these anti-racist and allyship things and then publishing Peterson's book completely goes against this. It just makes all of their previous efforts seem completely performative. Peter, I am never going to be as funny as that statement in my life. Like that, that is the most beautiful, uh, just collection of words my eyes have ever seen. And the rest of my life is just over. I'm never going to be as funny as that. <laughs> it's the allyship that gets me. That the allyship to me is a word uh, that we no, should No, just all... like, yeah, yeah, it's performative. <laughs> like these corporations don't actually care about you. It's performative. They just don't want you to spend money on them. Yeah, exactly right. Because Jordan Peterson makes them heaps and heaps of money, you know, you can't cancel him. Um, but yeah, so the, so the key takeout for me is that, and this is, might be stating the obvious, these people have, have literally not read or watched anything that Jordan Peterson's ever done. Because if you did, you would know that he's not a white supremacist by any stretch of the imagination uh, or any of those other things um, about it. And at, 
and what he does really i mean like obviously white supremacists hate him what the the stating the obvious i say that but um rather than blaming other people for your problems he he speaks gets you to uh fix your own problems and also james the thing he does say is you should listen to other people like they have something to say that you don't know about which is of course how can that ever be construed as uh being someone who's preaching and spreading hate is my My one thought pete are we 100 percent sure this isn't the marketing strategy because if i were to design the best jordan peterson new book marketing strategy it would be publishers revolt the woke crowd hated already I mean, this sells books. This sells books. Did not think of that. And that is a good point. You think so maybe the boss has gone, look, guys, if you guys could just carry on a bit when we have this town hall meeting, you know, there'll be a nice (laughs) little bonus in it for you. No, I reckon it was like a genuine civil revolt, but it's just this idea of going like, what do you think you're achieving through this? Like, they're not going to drop the book because they've got the profit margins at the back there and they've gone... Uh, Jordan Peterson book versus kowtowing to uh, staff that you know don't actually have that much importance in the company and going, hmm, I think we're going to go with the Peterson book. And all you're doing is just telling a whole waft of people that Jordan Peterson's got a new book out. So, I mean, how many people learned for this week that Jordan Peterson's got a new book out through this controversy? That's exactly right. I think that the takeout for me is just how can you feel so strongly about something you clearly haven't read? Like the person in that quote says they're literal, no one's read the new book, but you, you, know, you clearly haven't read the old book. Because you wouldn't think he's so. Yeah, I just don't get it. How you can feel strongly about something you don't know, you haven't read. Anyway. Yeah, and I'm. I'll just like revisit what I said when the New York Times had that collective over what Tom Cotton wrote in the opinion pages about um, the need to for, the need for federal martial presence at Black Lives Matter protests. Like, if you genuinely think you work in a company that uh, gives voice to white supremacism and makes it unsafe for people and minorities, quit. Like, mm. you, you know, you can quit. You don't have to go, well, I tried my best. I said something at a town hall meeting and I lost. Like, just just quit. That yeah, and these guys... the honourable path of what to do. Yeah, and they're still taking the money, by the way, that this, like, Peterson obviously creates a lot of coin for their company. I, I noticed none of them have, are giving back the money they earn from them. Anyway, speaking of cash, James, should we move on to our next story? Uh, Pete, this is a collective podcast. You can do what you want. <laughs> okay. Well, the IPA and other organisations like the Australian Taxpayers Alliance have had a, a, a victory that was sort of reported on very discreetly or very quietly in the last week, and that was the their government's cash plan. Now, government a controversial plan to ban businesses from making or receiving cash payments of more than $10,000 has been quietly shelved by the Morrison government. Um, now, this was justified like these things always are as a way to stop crime and, and stop tax evasion, I think is what they're really worrying about. Uh, prevent drug dealers from selling drugs, although selling drugs is already illegal. Um, which And obviously, there's a lot of reasons why you might want to make a big cash payment. Like maybe you just have lots of cash or you want to, there not to be a record of your purchase for any number of legitimate reasons uh one of the one of the grievances that was raised by people was that a lot of elderly people in different multicultural communities have used a lot more cash uh particularly stuff for stuff like funerals and things like that um for some reason so it's going to make it would have made life more difficult for them so you know james i think it's been a difficult year and we have to uh, celebrate our victories when we have them. And this, as I said, is a victory for the IPA, but also a victory for other organisations like the Australian Taxpayer Alliances. What was your view of this? Yeah, or just like regular Australians, because why the hell does the government need to know if you pay yeah. for cash or credit card? Like, I, I just don't get that. And the fact that this was put in by a Liberal Party policy, one, I mean, what the hell, are, like, what is the Liberal Party these days? But then two, I mean, it, it's 
you know, this is a sideways conversation and I'm taking it to a place very quickly that... Uh, Adjacent. You know, like we're moving off this story, but this is the kind of stuff that makes me wish we had voluntary voting because the, like a Liberal Party can go, we can have this policy because it makes things administratively easy. And even though if it, uh, if it annoys our base, where the hell are they going to go? Whereas if we didn't, like if, if their base didn't have to vote for them, they could go, hang on, aren't you the party that's trying to legislate what I can pay with? Things would be different. It is interesting. It's an interesting conversation to think about how much compulsory voting has dragged parties, particularly the coalition, into the middle. You know, because you've got a, you don't. You know, there's not the the thing to fire up the true believers. It's more about appealing to the people that aren't committed. Yeah, so I'd say it's a hundred percent. All you have to do is go for the middle and hope that One Nation or the Greens don't pick you at the margins. Like that's all parties are these days. Like those hot dog stands at the beaches. That's the way someone described it to me. Have you heard Tell that, me one, that one? I've never heard that one before. Is so, it good? Before you get into it, is it good? Oh, yeah. It explains it perfectly. Okay, good. I, might, I haven't heard it for about five years, so I might not get it right. But on the beach, there's two hot dog stands and they're right at opposite ends of the beach and they realize if they move to the middle, they'll sell more hot dogs because they'll, more people will see them. That was good. That's it. That's the right, no, You backed yourself in and it paid off. So congratulations to Pete. But yeah, Thanks, mate. It's, a good, it's a good win for policy, good win for people's freedoms. But yeah, just... I mean, we're in a state where the Liberal Party is the one pushing these things. Uh, things have got to change. Uh, all right, last one I want to talk about here. Uh, so, put this in the whomst could have possibly seen this coming, but reports come out this week that one or more of Australia's key intelligence and security agencies, quote, incidentally collected data relating to the COVID safe contract trace, uh, contact tracing app in the first six months of operation. So, yeah, Pete, like I'll just say, whomst could have seen that coming. Well, hoopst is the word, James. Uh, the, the, the quote that, I, that leapt out for me was the app data was scooped up in the course of lawful collection of, our, of the other data. So it was just scooped up, James. There's nothing they could do about it. From my reading of this, and obviously I'm no tech head, as regular listeners will know, it seems like that if, you, uh, if you're executing a search warrant by going through the data contained in a fiber optic, fiber optic thingo, uh, you get all the data that's in it, including that for the COVID app. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, that's you know that's that's is exactly what happened when we when the COVID app thing was being flaunted. We said you know look one of the things with stuff like this is it's always misused by the government um, and it creates its own security uh, problem just by its very existence. And it's happened once again. And we always talk about it. who was it the people in Western Australia that um, it was like some Western got, Australian Fisheries Board. That's it. That's my favourite example. What what data did they get hold of? They got hold of met, like they had access to metadata. Yeah. So yeah, okay. like if, if you're new to this, uh, just Google the rich history of different security agencies and different bodies in Australia using people's metadata. And, and make sure uh, you got your VPN on. Yeah, make sure you got your bitch. VPN on uh, if that keeps you safe from the Australian government. Uh, the other one I want to highlight here. So uh, you, we don't, we're, not, we're told not to worry because the report also found that uh, the agencies were, quote, taking steps to ensure any COVID app data is deleted as soon as practicable. Uh, which I'd feel a lot better with is if that wasn't the same people that were saying that they weren't going to be collected in the first place. Yeah. So like, you, yeah, you, you, you were wrong then, but you're going to be right now. And then six months later, it's like, well, we didn't delete it, but we're not using it. And then six months later, it's going to be, well, we're using it, but we're not using it for various means. And then six months later from that, it's going to be, well, terrorism. Yeah. It's always the same. It was always like, yeah, we misused it last time, but promise, but, you know, Trust us, we're not going to misuse mm. it again. Um, and we'll just delete it as soon as practical because it's not practical to delete it yet. 
All right, uh, let's go to Heroes and Villains, uh, keep the show moving. So this is Who Stood Up for Freedom and Liberty Around the World this week. Pete, the Grunt the Pig Snort. Pete, who is your Hero of the Week? James, my Hero this week is Poiter, which I think is the Belarusian spelling of my name. So Peter Markilau, who is a student and civil right activist in Belarus. So those that don't know about the, the situation in Belarus is that there's uh, widespread human rights abuses. There's accusations that the recent election was uh, fixed um, in terms of, uh, you know, it was interfered with by the government. Every Sunday they have protests for uh, democracy and human rights and to remove President Alexander Lukashenko. And um, unfortunately, it's one of those situations where we talk about people that are standing up for freedom and liberty in other parts of the world where there is a real threat to their safety and uh, Mr. Markalau has been arrested, unfortunately, by the authorities in Belarus for like the third time this year. When they get arrested, you know, they get beaten, uh, tortured, all those things. They don't have legal representation um, and, and, and things like that. Anyway, just for standing up to, to genuine brutality, you know, we sort of talk about freedom of liberty, James, from the safety of, you know, our homes and things like that. And whilst people might disagree with us, we won't get thrown in jail for it. Um, so people like Peter Markalau have my... Great admiration, and we talk about the protesters in Hong Kong a lot. Um, so he's my hero this week. Very good. Uh, all right, so my hero this week, bit of a story. So I, I don't know if we talked about this on the show last week, but um, I talked about it with someone. Might, might have been you. We didn't. We did not. Okay, so Eton College, UK. Uh, there's a teacher there, Mr. Noland, who made a lecture called The Patriarchy Paradox, which examined the prevailing idea of toxic masculinity. Uh, and he brought up a few things, chief among them, that science and history offer evidence of masculine virtues such as strength and courage could be beneficial to women, family, and society. Now, for this, uh, he was sacked. He was told, like, uh, basically the idea was that these vision, these views were uh, too extreme to even be told to Eton boys, even with the idea that, like, uh, you know, you can disagree. It wasn't uh, taught as this is fact. He's suspended from school. He's sacked. Now, story gets better because Eton College boys have put up a petition saying, actually, we are capable of being taught things and still disagreeing with them if we want to. Uh, and we're capable of arguing back. And we don't think Mr. Dolan should have been sacked because of extremist views like that, which, you know, isn't even that extremist. So I just like the idea that there are people out there who are getting educated who go, okay, actually, you know what? I can handle opposing views. I can handle all the ideas. Give them to me and I will sort out for myself, which I want. You don't need the school to go, actually, they're too precious. Particularly when it's young people. And I always like, because this has happened a few times now, it happened in Trinity in in Melbourne, which is a school here in Melbourne where a teacher got suspended or sacked or something for, tr- for telling someone they needed to get a haircut. Uh, and then the students revolted. And I like it when student activism... You know, everyone expects student activism to be sort of really left-wing, climate change, woke type stuff. But when it's more liberal, um, what would you call it? Standing up for freedom of expression, that kind of thing. Uh, that always warms my cockles. So, yeah, real good one, James. My last move- part I want to point about this, Pete, is that yep, the petition is written by the boys. Like, it's like literally the boys of Eton College. And it's like, regard they sign off as the boys. <laughs> I just like a petition that's from the boys. Yeah, Look, yeah, the yeah. fellas and I got together and we sorted out a few things. Petitions are for the boys. Yeah, good one. Uh, all right, Villain of the Week, James. So the fake nudie run by Extinction Rebellion. Roll the tape, please. Musky. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. There it is. That's the fake nudie run. Uh, Extinction Rebellion. So the fake nudie run 
Uh, $600 million fake new demand villain of the week. James, who's yours, mate? Keeping on my theme of uh, one law for them, one other for the others. Last week I yeah. talked about how Gavin Newsom has locked down California, but he still had a indoor restaurant appearance with other members of California, sorry, with members of California's elite medical team, the Governor Gavin Newsom, a few other political lobbyists, indoors, no masks, laughing it up, the rest of the state's locked down. So that was last week. This week, the mayor of Denver uh, has been for weeks telling his people do not travel uh, for Thanksgiving. Uh, we get all that. I just had a notification. Yeah, we got it all. We just got it all. face right. for a while, yeah. There we go. Okay, probably for the best of the podcast, but I'm going to keep going. So, Denver Mayor says, do not travel for Thanksgiving. Don't leave your homes. This is not the Thanksgiving to go out. We're in a pandemic. So, who do you reckon, Pete, was caught traveling for Thanksgiving interstate? I couldn't possibly guess, James. Well, it's the Denver Mayor. How do these people, like, not fall on their sword? Like, a you know, a defeated Japanese general, they should go, okay, I've been caught. This is not how I can continue my political career. I'm going to take the honourable path out. Yeah, James like, not James. actually kill themselves, but yeah, metaphorically, you know, in a political James. in a political sense. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's unbelievable. You can get sacked for like you know. Think about all the stuff you can get sacked for, and we'll talk about it with James Lindsay in a sec. Uh, yeah. Some of the crazy stuff you can get sacked for, but this is absolutely flagrant, like un- unforgivable hip- hypocrisy. There's people out there that are genuinely, absolutely suffering by this lockdown that this guy's implemented and he's meant to be making these decisions about these incredibly difficult moral decisions and he can't even realise that that is just unbelievably unfair and hypocritical and, and wrong. So, yeah, no, you're right there, James. So, speaking of hypocritical uh, and speaking of bad stuff the government does, my my um, feeling this week is the People's Daily of China and Twitter. Now, the People's Daily of China tweeted out during the week, all available evidence suggests that COVID-19 did not start in central China's Wuhan. This is not, not a good start, but may come into China through, through imported frozen food products and their packaging. So maybe they saw what happened into South Australia with the pizza box and they were inspired to write this tweet, the People's, what are they called? The People's Daily. Uh, now, if you think about all the stuff that Trump tweets that gets censored by Twitter or they put comments next to it or they block it or they put, you know, the signs on it. Uh, he's, he's written stuff about COVID here. I won't, I won't read out the whole thing because it goes for a while. But Twitter slapped it with a label that shielded users from reading it. Uh, but when the Chinese government literally puts out communist propaganda about a thing that has killed 1.5 million people, James, and that has, you know, completely ruined the lives of, you know, millions and millions of people... That's fine. Twitter still have not, you know, put a fact checker on it. They still haven't blocked it. They still haven't done, you know, all, all the things they do. They haven't uh, taken down that photo. I mean, we all know the photo of the Australian, like the faked photo of the Australian soldier and the Afghan girl. That's still up. It's been like blurred for sensitivity, but it's still up. No fact yeah. checking on that one. So I don't get why, you know, this obsession with with Trump, but not um, not vastly more clear-cut lies and propaganda from legitimately tyrannical, tyrannical regimes. Anyway, Twitter and the because CCP... Because in their brain, Orange Man is worse yeah. than a political party that's got a million Uyghur Muslims locked up. Like, they, they genuinely think that. Yeah, I guess they must. Um, and maybe, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, so Twitter and the CCP, you are my villain this week. All right, that is it for the start of the show. Uh, we know what the people have been waiting for, and it's the interview with James Lindsay. Uh, I'm so excited for you guys to hear it because it is so. It was so much fun talking to him. Uh, cynical theories, go out and get it. 
Okay, we now welcome onto the show someone I am so excited to talk to. It is James Lindsay, co-author of the hit new book, Cynical Theories. Time Magazine just made this one of the best non-fiction books of 2020. It is this perfect uh, summation of postmodernism, where it comes from, where it's going. And now he's on the show and we're going to talk about it. So I'm excited for this one. James Lindsay, how are you going? Hey, I'm good. Thanks. All right, so I want to start off with the cover and probably a good place to start when talking about a book, but uh, the cover has uh, critical theories and then big line through critical and instead it's cynical. So I guess we'll start off with like, what is postmodernism? And then to you, why is it so cynical? Okay, yeah. So the the cover of the book does hit that. It hits this idea that, that something that we're talking about is based in critical theory. Uh, the book, of course, focuses more on postmodernism because the the movement that we're trying to describe, the so-called woke movement or the applied postmodernism, as we call it in the book, movement is uh, a combination of critical theory and postmodern thought. And so both of these things, both postmodernism and critical theory, are actually very cynical approaches. So there's a, there's a number of ways in which that's relevant, uh, just to kind of touch on that. The um, critical theory tends to take the view that uh, people are behaving outside of their own best interests. And in, in fact, that they have this kind of false consciousness or internalized sense of dominance or oppression, and that they're not really aware of the real conditions of their lives and they would make better choices if they were. So it gets inside of your head and kind of cynically mind reads. And so we claim that the theories that follow from the critical theory tradition are cynical. If we look at how this developed in the postmodern school in particular, we were thinking of uh, the most famous postmodern philosopher, Michel Foucault. Um, Foucault had these, these projects that he called genealogies that he said were also critical in orientation. And his genealogies were looking back through the history of a subject like science or looking through the, the history of how homosexuality was considered, or looking through the history of, of how we talk about knowledge, where he goes into his so-called archaeology of knowledge. Archaeology was his earlier word for genealogy that he used before he developed the genealogical the method. And so what he did in every one of these examples, whether it was madness, whether it was homosexuality, whether it was science, whether it was knowledge, uh, what he did was he went through and he said, look at how wrong we were. And then we changed our minds and look how wrong we were again. And then we changed our minds and look how wrong we were again. So it's like telling the story of progress in a very cynical way, rather than saying, oh, look, we were wrong and we got a better guess that wasn't right yet, but it was better. And so we got, you know, maybe 50% better. And then we were still wrong. And then later we got maybe 50% more better. And, you know, and then maybe we got 20% closer and, you know, winnowing in on a better explanation. He just said, look, we were wrong. And then we were wrong again. And then we were wrong again. And then we were wrong again, which is a very cynical way to read the history of whether it's knowledge, science, or, or whatever, whatever you want to, to talk about in his analysis, power in particular. So these kinds of things are very cynical. They're, they're relevant to the way this whole ideology thinks about the world. And then when you add in what I just mentioned, the word power, their, their obsession is power, whether it's the systems of power that, that dominate society or whether it's the way that power is instrumentalized through knowledge and, and belief or uh, whether it's instrumentalized through even governments or ideologies these when you focus almost entirely on power you're already engaging in a cynical 
understanding of how the world works. And so all of these things kind of were mixed together and uh, replacing the word critical with cynical on the cover to kind of give this this idea that that's what this this whole line of analysis that's now captured the whole world. That's what it's really all about is is a cynical read on on history and knowledge and basically everything in society. James, one of the things that strikes me about this is that it's sort of it's it's why now? Like why has this idea of society and this version of society gone crazy now, particularly 2020, but also the last few years? When it was kind of this forgotten corner of philosophy or not forgotten but uh low profile corner of philosophy that um was complaining about things that liberalism was largely fixing at the same time so i guess yeah my question is why has this just gone absolutely nuts in the last few years well it's not the first time it's gone nuts it actually went nuts in its very kind of purely critical form in the 1960s very famously you know you whether you look at the united states where you had the riots and 67 and 68 that are very famous you know detroit is still not recovered from the riots that it had i think their 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 riots were in 1967. um that was all very much following the theorizing of herbert marcusa who was one of these critical theorists part of the frankfurt school as it's called of critical theory who had a few years earlier published a couple of things an important book um called one-dimensional man that basically created this case that 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 man is is reduced by modern society and in particular capitalist society to a one-dimensional creature that doesn't understand how much more complicated life is and how much more complicated his life could be and more enriching his life could be if he saw through the illusions of ideology and then he wrote a thing in 1965 a very famous essay called repressive tolerance and he talked about uh Karl popper's paradox of tolerance that says that if you're too tolerant of the intolerant, eventually the intolerant will bulldoze you. And so his answer to that was to to, to uh, make use of what he called a discriminating or a repressive tolerance that would repress the intolerant before they have a chance to gain any power. And these things manifested in, in riots. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say there's a direct line like, oh, Herbert Marcuse said this, and then people rioted in the streets two years later. But this was the kind of leftist zeitgeist that was going on at the time this was was prominent in their thought meanwhile you had in france 1960 may 1968 is very famous for their their uh their riots there that tied in with the national liberation movements that were happening across the world whether you had those in south america whether you had those in vietnam by an organization better known as the Viet Cong. um there were these national liberation movements that were happening that, that got tied into the french uh context mostly because of the liberation movement in algeria where the french had been the, the colonists of course they're also the colonists in vietnam and so um these kinds of things haven't have bubbled up before and they kind of bubbled up again in the 1990s uh and even in the late 1980s you saw kind of this surge of kind of radical feminism leading into this kind of surge of political correctness politics through the 80s and 90s where you had even rush limbaugh coming out and calling feminists feminazis uh so you, this thing has kind of bubbled up a few times in the past but we're in a situation now where we have a few unique conditions one of those conditions is that in marcuse's day in the 60s the academies were primarily not 
left oriented. In fact, they were slightly conservative and in some cases quite conservative. So our universities were mostly conservative entities that then shifted. Um, and people like Marcusa took advantage of this very intentionally. And they, a leftist intelligentsia started to develop within the academies. So this is about 50 years ago. So that's a few generations, you know, maybe three generations back. Or in academic terms, maybe more like five generations back. So it's really the kind of thing that, that's become entrenched. And our academies have become very dominantly leftist over the past 50 years. Um, which is a big swing from what was going on in the 60s and the 50s, especially before that, where it was a very conservative dominant uh, kind of environment. So if you think about it, though, 50 years of teaching this stuff, 50 years of it gaining dominance in the academies is 50 years of laying bedrock into the, uh, the, the educated and professional classes of society where this stuff is really just kind of taken off. It's mostly happening within these professional and, and administrative classes like HR departments and human resources departments and so on. Um, so you have 50 years of bedrock being laid through the universities, which is one thing. Um, then we have the emergence of social media, which is another. And the emergence of social media is extremely significant because I think it is a very useful way to conceptualize what a critical theory is um, as a hot take. And hot takes go viral on social media. Whoever has like the, oh my God, look at this hidden racism in you know this Rudolph cartoon for about Christmas, all of a sudden gets 200,000 engagements in, in a matter of you know hours or days. Whereas somebody who gives a very detailed analysis for how that's absolutely preposterous gets very little attention or uh, you name it, right? Oh, here's this horrible thing this guy did. You know, he did this sexual harassment thing. It was horrific. Oh my gosh, goes viral. Next thing you know, you've got these different kinds of movements that can take place in our, our very network oriented society that we have on social media now that we didn't have before. And so you have this, this situation now where all these narratives have been being laid with tons of academic respectability, not just leftist radicals out in the streets. And then you have these perfect preconditions on social media for those narratives to go crazy. And then when you add in the postmodern element, which is what we really talk about in cynical theories, the people really need to understand social media is postmodernism's playground. We go back and you read somebody like Foucault, or you go back and you read somebody like uh, Lyotard or Baudrillard in particular, these French postmodern philosophers of the 1960s and 70s. And you're like, are they talking? Are you are, are you sure they were writing in the 70s and they're not talking about the Internet? Because um, and I don't want to give them more credit than they're due, but uh, the ability for narratives and kind of these things Foucault referred to as truth regimes to sort of just take off where truth becomes more contingent upon how many people gave it likes on social media than on you know careful research uh that is that has a very natural home in our social media environment so we have a confluence of a lot of forces i mean if we want to get even more complex and maybe we don't want to go there but the the collapse of of neoconservatism and the relative vacuum that's been left we have these kind of old guard neocons try you know the, the okay boomer meme really speaks at this these old guard neocons who still want to have, you know, their world order that they were trying to build. And nobody likes it except for them. So there's this kind of vacuum of political authority uh, at the national and international levels. 
into which, you know, this is all kind of playing at the same time. So we're at this kind of confluence of events that has, I think, led this stuff to kind of just erupt. And, and then simply enough also, it's very uh, satisfying to a narcissistic mind. And so when you have generations of children who've been raised in safety and instant gratification and never being bored and it's always being about them, this whole self-esteem movement that the United States at least did in its schools really badly. And I, I know you guys are Aussies, but you're going to have to deal with the fact that everybody imports American garbage. Um, it's just, we export garbage better than anybody on the planet. and Everybody's got to deal with that. And we uh, are your like number China. one customers. <laughs> I mean, I hear that from like every country, but um, it, yeah, it's bad. It, it, you guys really do buy into a lot of it. Uh, so, you know, this kind of narcissistic mindset, like, you know, I remember watching cartoons and, and TV shows and stuff when I was a kid, you know, late kid, early teen age, you know, 12, whatever, something like that. And everything was like, you know, we now we didn't have the Internet yet. I, I'm a little too old for that. But it was like, you know, there was ways to, I don't remember what exactly they had, but it was like send in letters. It was like, we want to know your opinion you know, and it was like you could push buttons on your cable and like vote on things. And it was just like, nope. Turns out, you know, I remember there was this whole like movement. It was going to be like Republic of Kids or something like that. And it was like the kids were going to be the new government. And it's just like, this is stupid. But this whole idea, though, that that every child is super interesting is just part of how like all the kids are everybody under the age of 30 believes that they're and maybe that's you guys i don't know but everybody thinks they're so special um and they're so used to instant gratification again it's these confluence of, of forces that have made these particular narratives very uh very seductive and very able to be disseminated and also tied into what the cultural elites all buy into and believe and, and use all the time um, if all like this is the dynamic, you go to work, you get all your shine, you know, you're the new kid at the, at the office. It's your prestigious job. You tried to get that you went to college for five years or whatever to get qualified for. And you go home and you meet all these people, you know, at the first, first few days and you go home and you look them up on Facebook and you start, you start connecting or whatever other social media. And you start looking at their profiles and, you know, it's like, oh, well, they believe this and they believe that and they believe this. And it's just very easy to start falling in line with them. Uh, and social media, again, plays a unique role here because never before in history have we been able to see inside the heads of all of our friends and neighbors and coworkers like constantly uh, and therefore create this kind of, you know, ideological conformity to whatever the cool kids are doing. So I think that's why now um, a huge aspect, actually, I think of this like with the Black Lives Matter movement. If you think about it, most of those stories didn't pan out. You go back and you look at the different stories of the police killings and you're like, oh, the cop was in the right. Okay. So that wasn't what really happened. Um, great. But what happened, you know, that story was able to just go viral and just take off and create this narrative way ahead of the months-long investigations that painstakingly work out the truth that that wasn't true. And you know, when you have this kind of environment in which everybody can kind of, everybody, do you know how much information we consume that's out of context every day? 
and then how much pressure there is for every person who's like, if you're on Twitter, is there something you're allowed to not have an opinion about? No, of course you have to have an opinion on everything. So everybody's a PhD in every subject possible. Like it doesn't matter what happens. We could find a gold deposit under the ocean and everybody on earth tomorrow on Twitter is a expert in undersea mining and they know exactly what to do and how to get it. And I mean, it's just preposterous. But when you combine these things, you're in a really kind of volatile state that's, that postmodernism, frankly, describes quite well. Um, so that's, I think, why now. So another, so you bring up the early 90s before, like I was born in 94, so I wasn't uh, there for that. But I think I, I don't see when I read the stuff about the 90s that it was as far advanced because as you say, like, uh, all right, so I'll, I'll put it like this. So when Brett Weinstein was attacked by his students, there was this idea that like, oh, these are ju- this is just this far left liberal arts college. This isn't representative of the population. Just watch, these kids are going to have to one day graduate and get a job and they'll realize a year of their ways. And then these people do get jobs and some of them get jobs in leading corporations around the world and they can make Pepsi say, hang on, your next target market should be a protest. And they can make all these other companies take these incredibly woke positions. So uh, I don't know if the 90s did get to the part where corporations are now, like, or like the famous Gillette ad where it's like, okay, our target market now cares about toxic masculinity as opposed to how good is this going to shave me for my next job interview. Um, why are corporations so desperate to bend the knee to these like sea of people in their 20s? You know, that's a complicated question in and of itself. And you are right. They were... Um definitely much more kind of doing their own things back in the 90s and they weren't quite as susceptible to this but then again i watched this documentary quite a long time ago and maybe i'm embarrassing myself because maybe it's propaganda i have no no idea it's been i don't know 15 years since i've seen it but it was made in the 90s to my recollection it was called merchants of cool and it talked about how the ad industry but in particular outlets like mtv which were kind of on the forefront of all of this were going around to the various subcultures and they were trying to find out what the next cool thing was. And then they were packaging it up and marketing it to people. So they would go find out, you know, what the edge edgy kids are doing, the new, you know, like nobody knows about yet what was going to later become like the hipsters or something like this. They were finding out about it as quickly as possible with their like correspondence on the ground and really what they were as marketing researchers. And then they were repackaging that and turning it into kind of corporate nonsense to, to feed back to people and sell to sell to their audience. And it's a really profound look at what what was actually going on at the time. And it, of course, was very successful. Uh, the youth market has a lot of energy. And once you get to a certain age group, they are usually quite willing to part with their money um, on things that are not necessarily particularly wonderful purchases. I think of kind of my own kids sometimes and they're in their early 20s and some of the purchases that they make. And I, I just think, you know, no kind of more stable and grown adult would buy that. <laughs> they, they, would, they would, even if they wanted the thing, they would recognize at the stage I'm at in life, this is not an appropriate purchase for the amount it costs and so on. So a lot of people as, as disposable income started to, to concentrate for whatever set of reasons in that age group, the, the marketing really started to target them in a way that definitely dove into these kind of countercultural, um, 
I don't want to say fringe because that's not right. It's like the new the new wave of cool. So it's not quite fringe. It's like the thing that's a step ahead of the mainstream. And so, you know, this kind of becomes really relevant, I think, in terms of how people are marketed to. And now what we have, though, the, the reason that Pepsi Cola, for example, is just going to bend the knee which is a very different thing than say, how do I basically extract all the money I can out of these people, which they're also doing simultaneously, is because we are in now in a state of absolute moral panic around this. And as you said, these graduates that are coming out of these departments in, in the universities, the ad, ad, advertising departments, the, the communications departments, these are all, you say, oh, well, that's not gender studies. No, but that stuff, is eaten up with, with with the themes of media studies. That stuff is all in their curriculum. Everybody's required to take these kinds of classes or at least have units within their courses about this kind of justice. It's like, I keep hearing from the university administrators and they're like, we're not forcing social justice on the kids. They're coming in and demanding it of us. And so they're mad if we're not giving them justice oriented curriculum. So we have to hire these administrators and so on and so forth. And, you know, I don't tend to like to believe that these people are just lying about that to save their own asses, especially in a university where the administration is basically untouchable anyway. So I look at that and I think that's probably true. And so somewhere along the line, we've hit this problem where adults stopped saying no. And they said, oh, well, the young people want this. And the adults stopped saying no. Uh, within the universities, I know certainly when I was still teaching in the mid-2000s, um, there was this huge shift. And uh, I talked about this not quite directly when I was on Joe Rogan's podcast the first time. And I said that I saw the writing on the wall in the universities and it was part of why I didn't stay in the university after 2010. The writing I saw on the wall was the shift toward student retention above everything else. There was this huge shift about so I taught 2002 to 2010. It was somewhere right near the middle of that where we would then have a department meeting at the beginning of the semester and usually one or two in the middle of the semesters every term. And we were being told, you know, don't grade too harshly. Make sure that everybody kind of gets a good enough grade so that they won't fail out of college. They won't lose their scholarships or whatever the other things were. They had all these state scholarships. There's all this you know, different avenues of money, whether it's federal, federally backed student loans or state run lottery scholarships or whatever they happen to be, they were dumping money into universities through tuition dollars. And the university administrations had already started to bend the knee in just a very kind of corporatist sense to let's make sure that money keeps coming in. Let's give the students what they want. This whole attitude of let's give them what they want has something to do with it. Uh, although I wouldn't consider myself necessarily an expert in that. Jabe, so let, let's um, let's move to the future a little bit here. Like, so how do you see this playing out if postmodernism doesn't exactly have an optimistic view of the future or a kind of um, you know an idea that we can all make the world a better place or whatever it is? Do you see this burning itself out, or will it get significantly worse? If you could predict the future for us, that would be great. Thanks. Oh, yeah. Let me just grab my crystal ball real quick. Um, no, so postmodern you cannot build a stable society on postmodernism. So when I earlier was saying some fairly um, positive things about postmodernism in terms of describing the environment we find ourselves in now, I think that postmodernism as a descriptive project wasn't 
that bad. In fact, it was right about a lot of things that we should have been taking very seriously as warnings. And we did not take them as seriously as we should, mostly because it was doing a bunch of goofy stuff. And it was also being very prescriptivist and being taken up by activists who nobody wanted to listen to. But as a set of descriptions, it's pretty good. But as a set of prescriptions for how society should run or how you might form a foundation or a basis for society, you'd be better off building your society or building your castle, if you will, on sand. It's just you cannot build a stable society on postmodernism. You also can't build a stable society on critical theory, um, which, you know, the present movement is a fusion of these two things. They both, in some sense, though in different ways, are, I, I described it in a talk a little over a year ago. I said that they're like industrial solvents, like a really strong industrial solvent. As a matter of fact, deconstruction, which is kind of the heart of postmodernism, is a, I think Dan Dennett is the one who came up with this uh, originally, though I didn't know about it, uh, he talked. About, he had a paper where he talked about a universal solvent, a solvent that can dissolve anything, which means it can dissolve its own container, which means it can dissolve anything. When the container dissolves, it will dissolve anything it lands on. And so he's like, the you know, the problem with a universal solvent is finding a, a container that can hold it. Um, and Critical theory is very much so a universal solvent, and postmodernism and deconstruction are also almost universal solvents. The one thing that deconstruction can't deconstruct is deconstruction, which is what allowed the critical theorists to step in and say, aha, you people must be privileged if you're going to be able to claim that you can deconstruct all these things because you know, you never deconstructed your own views, da-da-da-da-da. And so then you ended up with this, this very dangerous thing. So if I was going to predict the future... It's very difficult to guess because it depends on a lot of factors as to what will happen next. But um, it will not last forever. The question has never been, will we end up in a postmodern world that's stable and functioning? Because that's not possible. It's not really possible to build effectively. And you do have to build and constantly, continually build to to have a society that's progressing in any re in any regard rather than just coming apart. And so the question becomes how much will it infect and when it finally starts to collapse how much of it will go down in flames as as it collapses. Now it's not like this kind of monolithic thing in some sense postmodern thought and and critical thought are always going to kind of be with us. They're in fact, some kind of a weird religion-like thing that I think a significant section of, of people left of center were, are probably always going to kind of believe now and operate uh, within now, which is its own problem. It's kind of here to stay, especially given social media. But my guess is that human beings looking at the trajectories of history, human beings are not particularly good at realizing that they're they're doing the wrong thing until it goes too far. This is, in fact, what Foucault was doing, although I usually kind of refer to it as the problem of plastic surgery for my, my own kind of thought or whatever. So Foucault would say, you know, look at how we, we tried to make things better, in particular, actually, where he talks about, like, the, the progress of science, and he gets talking about the, 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 the Soviets and the Nazis, and how horrific science turned out to be in the cases of how the, you know the horrors of 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 Stalin and, and Hitler in World War II, and you know our ability to create to create airplanes led to carpet bombing, 
our ability to split the atom didn't lead to, you know, energy independence. It led to nuclear weapons and bombing Japan for what may have been bad reasons or, you know, all of these kind of horrific ways to read different things. My contention is like a little bit more possible worlds, but my, my view is that you don't learn the thing is wrong until you mess up a couple of times uh, very much. You know, sometimes you got to let the kid touch the stove if you understand the, 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 the metaphor. So this is why I refer to it sort of as a problem of plastic surgery. Um, you'll see a lot of people get a plastic surgery done, a famous person, and it goes well and they look sharp and then they get another one done and they goes well, and they look better. And then they get another one done and they look like some kind of freak because it all your data is like this is great until all of a sudden you've gone too far and it's really bad and then you can't go back because the only way is to get more of them done and come out looking more and more like a weirdo and you know it's sort of the michael jackson problem as a matter of fact is kind of the archetype of that situation but you see it all the time with different people getting plastic surgeries done oh i'll get a little one 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 nip tuck nip tuck nick you know can't go back now can you and so um same kind of thing happens. So with this, I think it's like, oh, well, we'll tolerate a little bit more of this. Oh, we'll tolerate a little bit more of this. Oh, we'll tolerate a little bit more of this. Oh, and then all of a sudden, you're to the point where you have something completely dysfunctional and unstable, and it will require some major things collapsing before people are like, ooh. What I've noticed is nobody believes that this, this particular ideology that we detailed in cynical theories is as bad as it is until it completely ruins something very close to them personally. And then they're like, wait, this is horrible. I want to fight it. And, you know, after it's too late. So this is sort of a general trend. So looking at that, I would say we're going to have to lose some very, very significant things and how dangerous or fatal that is to our societies, Western societies or some Western societies is hard to say. I will also add that it's certainly not the case that other entities on the global stage like China are just sleeping. You know, they're obviously, you know, what was it? Beijing just released a statement the other day. It's like the West, the United States has to deal with its systemic racism problem. Ha ha ha. And it's like, oh, come on. But you know that they're doing this for a reason, because they know that if they can destabilize and weaken the United States in crucial and in central ways, that Chinese hegemony is going to assert itself in the 21st century. And that's their objective. And that's straight up why they fund a lot of these initiatives themselves. Uh, so I think that we are running a bigger risk than we realize in the West because they're like, oh, this will burn out. Yes, it will. Oh, well, we'll lose some things like, you know, maybe the in, in the United States, the American Civil Liberties Union. Yeah, well, maybe we will use we, we will lose that. Um, maybe we'll lose our entire university system for a decade or two. Who knows? OK, so. How, can we survive that? I don't know, but I know that entities like China are hoping we lose those things and lose our edge globally, whether that's America, whether that's the European Union, whether that's Australia, whether that's any country in the West, whether that's the, especially in that regard, the broad network of alliances of these various countries, most of which are Anglophone, uh, that we describe, even though you guys are technically not in the Western Hemisphere, you know, you guys still count as part of the West, you know, deal with these paradoxes, Aussies. Um, <laughs> that's why you're the Texas of the British Empire. So, um, I, I don't have a lot of positive 
things to predict unless there is a rather and, and I do see some some stuff happening that's encouraging unless there's a fairly rapid waking up to standards that are not subjectivist and identity based and a kind of rejection of postmodernism where it counts which again I'm starting to see the a a the awareness of the need for this awakening and an, an informed populace is starting to form around the, the groundswell that's pushing for it. But unless that happens quite quickly, I see um, I see it as likely that you might want to get your Duolingo and start learning Mandarin. Uh, I'm learning Italian. Uh, I'm slightly more optimistic in the sense that I've got a lot of friends who are extremely woke and pride themselves on that. Uh, and I don't know, with, with this theory, you do need to eventually win the hearts and minds of people that uh, aren't in the academic world and do have other things to think about. And I don't know, just the relentless negativity and the cynicism that you described earlier, I can't see it building a positive vision of the future for anyone. And if you're in the system, if your views are out of date for even a day, you can go viral on the internet and have 100,000 people tell you you're a Nazi just because you missed one article. And I just, I'm, I, I talk to my friends that are in this and it's this culture of fear. Like I, okay, I thought this, I'm now too scared to say that I thought we still thought this. It's now this other thing we're thinking. And eventually people have just got to get themselves out of the cults and just go, hang on, I've been in this for years. I'm anxious the whole time. I don't know what I'm supposed to think anymore. And we're not any closer to the vision of a good society. Now, in your book, you talk about how liberalism does have a positive idea and has had a huge agency for change over the last hundred years. Think about what we've done to eliminate racism, what we've done to eliminate gender differences. That's the positive future that people can buy into, which I don't think uh, postmodernism is ever going to replicate. I agree. I actually agree with that. So, like I said, there's this kind of groundswell waking up that's giving me some hope and i have spent much of the last few months fairly hopeless uh because of how rapidly it's institutionalizing there is of course the other side of things we're in this very new world if you will um where the internet makes everything as you as you kind of indicated you missed one article and you're like you're behind the times and so everything is very rapid now and Therefore, you know, once something starts to become the institutional thing, you know, you got Joe Biden standing up there in the in the U.S. now. He's like, we're going to he's like 275 years old. And like, we're going to root out systemic racism. And everybody's like, <laughs> shut up, old man. You know, it's like it's already like, no, that was last year, Joe. Um, and so it is possible. I actually surprisingly I, I, I've you know, I've recently, I guess, properly taken the so-called red pill. And, um, you know, I voted for Trump. I know you're not supposed to say that. It's like, or whatever, but I did. And so I've really reflected on this whole Trump phenomenon in a kind of a new way, um, because shockingly, or not shockingly at all, lots of people turned on me very quickly. And I, I kind of got to see from the other side of the whole Trump divide what um, what it's like. And so I've been thinking about the Trump phenomenon pretty pretty intensely for a while and it's very probable that the accelerationism that happened under under trump or in response to or reaction to trump whatever the causes for that might have been has caused this movement to jump the shark to 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 i mean it's too obviously a shark jumping and it's happened too quickly and too soon 
and it's freaked a lot of people out. Uh, I, I keep getting messages from people who are either telling me that, that they are, um, or that, it, you know, me a message relayed from my friends who are all former Bernie Sanders supporters are contacting me and they're saying, I don't know what to do. I think I'm a Republican now. And so, you know, there's this weird shift where people who have been pretty ardently leftist in the U.S. context are now suddenly realizing that something is badly wrong. And I know that one of the reasons one of my friends cited specifically was like, what the heck was that about them making lists of Trump supporters and Trump enablers and all? What's going on with this? And can we have one day where we don't have to talk about something being racist? Just one day. And so it's actually annoyed a lot of people. And so we're in this new context with, with social media where, again, like you said, things change very, very quickly. They can change, you know, usually you don't think of a large ship like a nation or something like that being able to change. And maybe nations themselves don't change in a very quick fashion. But um, groups who have kind of similar ideological views, if you will, who have kind of formed kind of, I don't know, internet nations amongst themselves, you know, like all the people who would see themselves as classically liberal, regardless of what country they live in, they could live in China, they could live in Canada, they could live in Australia, they could live in South, South Africa, they could be all over the world. These kind of people all can kind of band together on the internet and opinion within that group can actually, you know, change fairly quickly. They can see the thing and say, wait a minute. And that's where I think we're starting to see this or where I it's it's fairly new. It's just been in the past, I don't know, week and a half or so that I've started to hear from Bernie supporters who are thinking who are saying things like, I think I'm a Republican now and I don't know what to do. And it's like, you know, breathe. <laughs> Step one, breathe. Um, you can have your views. You don't have to put yourself in a box or a label. Uh, but right now, it may be true that some aspects of the Republican Party are speaking more clearly than aspects of the Democrat. You know, you can. But so maybe I saw if you would have asked me two months ago, I would have been much more pessimistic than I am uh, in the past month or so after watching the dramatic shift in public mood following the American election. So. It's very it's very possible that enough people are waking up and with Trump being actually. I don't know if it was on purpose or inadvertently uh, instrumental in getting people's attention that that what's going on with this kind of postmodern left is not a sustainable project um, and it is not what we want to build our society on, even if it does at times make really good points. So, you know, I'm cautiously sharing your optimism james i know that's probably a very crowded field but what is the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard described as problematic i mean everything can be problematic so i mean literally anything um i mean right now the one that's hot at the moment is you know referring to women as women you know you have to call them vulva owners or people with cervixes or something like this. This is pretty far up there in the, if, I mean, it's not one of those things like, you know, it makes you snort and spit out your coffee when, and laugh when you come across it. Like, I mean, I saw the other day, you know, this it's, it's an older article. I think it was from 2017, but I shared it on Twitter and there's this overweight 
black woman who got caught not wearing her seatbelt while she was driving. And she said that seatbelts are racist against fat people. Um, so that's not necessarily, so seatbelts are problematic, but it's the specific way in which they're problematic that makes you spit your coffee. Um, you know, it's just kind of preposterous, but this whole thing, if you really start getting down into the nitty gritty, gritty of it, that it's in a, it's problematic to refer to women as women to the level where you have to now identify them by some really disgusting term. You know, I don't have a problem with vulvas. You know, I'm sort of a fan of vulvas, to be honest with you. But to call them vulva owners or people with cervixes or people who bleed, to like reduce them to some body part and it, it, because it's problematic not to, that's a thing. Now, if you want to get a little more ridiculous in the same vein, you know, there's a whole thing that's cropped up two or three times where, you know, everybody, of course, you got to have your pronouns and it's problematic if you don't have your pronouns, but it's also problematic if you do have your pronouns for various reasons. For example, it's problematic to have your pronouns if, because uh, it, it can make people who haven't figured out their pronouns yet, it can make those people uncomfortable. That was a thing I saw the other day. Several months ago, it was that, you know, if everybody has their pronouns, trans people are the only people whose pronouns don't necessarily look like they look, you know, if you follow me. And then that makes them stick out, which is also problematic. So therefore your pronouns, because most people are, are cisgender as they call it, um, announcing your pronouns reinforces cis normativity because most people are cis. And so it becomes obvious that most people use their normal pronouns. And I know I'm not supposed to call it normal, but here we are. Um, so, you know, when you get to this, I mean, everything is problematic, literally everything. And so I don't know, you pick your favorite, most ridiculous thing. I mean, I think I saw something saying that the purple dinosaur Barney thing was like racist and has to be rebooted in some way. So it's like everything, everything is problematic. Um, I actually asked Helen, we had this discussion, uh, several months ago, I was working on, on, on my encyclopedia on new discourses and I was talking to her. I, I was actually working on it myself and I was like, okay, so we have this idea in science of falsifiable and then unfalsifiable statements. If a statement is unfalsifiable, you know, science kicks it out. So, um, you know, there's a supernatural realm that's unfalsifiable because the second you discover it, it's in the natural realm. So it's technically unfalsifiable. So science doesn't even consider supernatural it just can't it's outside of its its scope it just can't discuss the issue so i was like is there something that's unproblematizable or something and i asked helen and she said no i can't think we spent days and days and days thinking trying to think of a single thing that couldn't be problematized and everything can be problematized because it's all just like it's all word games so when it's all word games you can do whatever you want with it yeah, I gotta go with uh, a thread I saw this morning on Twitter where some random person in the internet just uh, posted a photo of them holding their old jeans, going, "Look, I hit my goal weight for the year," and you know, a hundred thousand strangers were like, "This is fantastic, good on you." And then there was the idea that actually maybe this is fat phobic because we're normalizing healthy bodies. And I just thought, well, that's just great. Anyway, uh. James yeah, there was a the lady. I don't know if you saw the lady that said that she was used to be like 350 or 308. I mean, just some extremely high I think this weight. is a thread. I think this is a thread. I was, yeah, <laughs> and, and she's, I she can, 
and she can run now like under 10 minutes she can run a mile which is pretty good i don't know i'm i can't do that anymore i don't think i used to be fast when i was 20 but i'm not fast anymore and so it's like you know this is and she's lost all this weight and she looks much better most importantly she's more much healthier and all these people like you know like you said probably like 100 300,000 people are like yay and then this is like people just going berserk about this is fat phobic. This is a fat genocide. Fat genocide is one of my favorite ones, to be honest with you. The diet industry. Yeah, that's what they said. You're supporting the diet industry. It's like this person because she's wearing like a fitness heart monitor watch or something like that. It's like, holy crap. Um, just let people be happy for five minutes with something. And that's that's again where you you tap into what you were saying earlier, James. It's just the people are getting tired of not being allowed to like anything. Yeah, exactly. If I can't support some person hitting a weight goal, then it's not a theory that you really want to buy in. Uh, anyway, James, uh, you've been so generous with your time. This is everything I wanted in the conversation. The book is Cynical Theories, uh, the most important nonfiction book of 2020, I'll say, uh, and so will Time Magazine. So get out and buy it. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, mate. Okay, thank you too, James Lindsay, Cynical Theories. Go out and get it. Uh, all right, what a we've got four stories we're going to run through uh, that have made us laugh this week. So I want to start off, Pete, and talk to us about it. Robin DiAngelo might be propagating white supremacy. Well, I don't think there's any question about it, James. I think it's just this is a, this is a clear-cut case of the structural racism that Robin DiAngelo talks about all the time. Two women, James, were announced to keynote speakers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's annual diversity forum. Thank God they've got one every year. Both women were represented by the same New York-based uh, speakers bureau, Harry Walker Agency. I don't know why that's relevant. Uh, they both spoke about anti-racism, James, yet one woman was paid 70% for more for her speech than the black woman, and that, of course, was Robert D'Angelo, whose best-selling book, White, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, is one of the cornerstone texts of this garbage. Uh, she was paid twelve grand, twelve grand, seven hundred fifty dollars US for her keynote speech, which went for like an hour, while Channing Brown, the other keynote speaker, received just seven thousand. $500 US, which is still pretty good going, James. And one of the things people don't realize about the diversity game is that it is a really, really good earner. Anyway, that's racism, surely. Well, or alternatively, Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility is a gigantically successful book. And no, 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 no. it's easy to say racism. It's easy to say racism. Let's just say racism. Uh, look, I got, a, I got an easy solution for them. Um, so the problem is uh, Robin D'Angelo was paid 12 grand. The black person was paid seven thousand five hundred grand. I've got a win-win-win. All right, yeah. you get me to do it for five thousand uh, dollars. I get to do the speech. You get to pay a black person more than a white person, and everyone gets to hear things. And I get five thousand dollars. You always go down this route. You always sort of offer. The- I will do it. I think you could do it. You could do a good job, James. Um, yeah, it's just like I don't know. What is surprising is that no one's ever done this before. Because clearly, I don't know who it is. You know, activists for the Republicans or whatever, have thought, you know what we'll do? We'll just work out how much they get paid. It seems like a pretty obvious one. Um, and yeah, so I the only thing the only thing that she could possibly do is give money to some charity or something. So that's racist. I don't think that's going to wipe off the stain of 500 years of white supremacy. Maybe she honest. should just get cancelled. She should just be cancelled. I think so. I think that's the only path forward. Uh, all right, Pete, uh, a party has disintegrated over an ox cord. 
Well, I really, this, this story really tickled me, James. It really, you know, I've all been to parties where, you know, someone's on the, someone's on the music and people want to change in direction and things can get pretty heated. Things can get pretty heated. That is what happened at a function for the, for the Forum for Democracy. It's obviously got a Dutch name in the Netherlands, but it translates to the Forum for Democracy. Now, they have fallen apart. They've had the, the party uh, founder, Thierry Bordeaux, uh, has resigned uh, allegedly over his failure to not do enough to tackle right-wing extremists in the party's youth wing. They're sort of a one-nation type party. Um, however, according to Dutch political commentator Yap Janssen, uh, the whole dispute kicked off at this function at Thierry's house where they were listening to classical music uh, and prospective MP Just Erdsmans, uh, <laughs> I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Declared that he was sick of listening to Classical FM and he put on Kings and Queens by Ava Max instead. Now, listeners out there will know Kings and Queens by Ava Max. I had to listen to it. Uh, I've, I've due, literally never heard of either of those things. With all due respect to Miss Max, it was absolute trash. But uh, anyway, okay. that's what he put on. Um, this led Badao to shout, this is the party of classical music. We only play classical music of here. This sparked a series of arguments which eventually led to the disintegration of this party, James. So, Ava Max, Kings and Queens, led to the, uh, the huge problems within this party. I'm not going to lie, the Oxcord is a place of giant responsibility and uh, mm. an almost it's an almost sacred role to provide the music mm. for a party. You've really got to read the room. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's Someone's got to have been the Oxcord por- person from the start and everyone just has to buy on board because once the Oxcord starts switching between phones, I mean, you are going to not only lose control of the room, but you are going to lose control of your own political party. So I can see where this goes. My solution is just put on Tribe Quest. That is the only... Everyone's going to be happy. Everyone's going to get into the vibe. It's It hits every single mood you could possibly want. It, it's just where to go. It always is. The, the thing that sort of... Um, the reason I sympathise with Baldo here is because... And that's the fourth different way I've pronounced his name. Uh, is that you've got to wait till the end of the bloody song before you change music. You can, you can change it around, but if people are jumping in before the end of the song, that to me is just the end of civilization and everything falls apart. But I, I take your point about the seriousness of being uh, in charge of the ox thing. Um, and it's to be honest, you know, I've seen you at a few functions and you take it very seriously and it's a responsibility I that sits heavily on your shoulders. So seriously. <laughs> it he does. Um, yeah, I do. All right. Uh, I got another story. So Tribe Called Quest. That's my number one piece of advice. Uh, all right. So we got a new Western Australian Liberal Party leader. This is a sign that Western Australia's borders will always be closed because if they need to have a new leader this close to an election, it's probably not going to go too well. And Mark McGowan's going to go, well, big boys back in for another couple of years and the people like the closed borders. Uh, Sorry, but I do want to highlight one thing about this. So I... the new Western Australian leader is giving his introductory press conference. Here's what I am. Here's what I'm about. Uh, you know, th- how to introduce yourself to a voting public. And what he does is pull out a business card that he wrote to, to he handed to John Howard in 2004. And on it is his name, like, you know, the Western Australian guy, not John Howard, the Western Australian guy's name, and then future prime minister. Now, Pete, in the halls of political scandals, there are some things that you can tell the public eventually, and there are other things that you take to your damn grave, and that you wrote a business card to John Howard calling yourself the future Prime Minister is something that never comes out, no matter what. 
Exactly right. So this, this is Zach Kirk, Kirkup, but he he um, he was. I don't blame seventeen year old Zach Kirkup for that because you know you do. Stupid I blame stuff him a little bit, but no, keep going. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's I did. It's a bad dream. That's a bad dream. But the fact that he thought, as a thirty four year old, when he's now in charge of the WA Libs, that this will be really good and people will love it, um, was interesting. Maybe he thinks I need to cut through. They've only got thirteen seats out of fifty nine over there at the moment. The coalition, which is, and they're getting thumped in the polls. So. In terms of, you know, big boy Mark McGowan getting back in, I think you're pretty, yeah. pretty safe. Maybe the only seat they'll have is the seat that they give to that business card. And he's just, like, that business card is just the lone representative of the LNP for the next couple of years in Western Australia. Well, apparently this guy is on is in the most marginal seat that the coalition holds. He's, he's, he's in by 0.7. So, I don't know, the business card thing might... It just depends how it plays. He, he, he yeah. I genuinely think he's like, I need to cut through and this ridiculous business card... He's going to do it. It is one of those words um, that literally no one wanted to get thumped by Mark McGowan. So they picked this guy. <laughs> yeah. Sacrificial lamb. Yeah. So, no, nah, I mean, if that wouldn't, if I don't think that's going to play well with the marginal punters no. in WA at all. You know how in the US, if you're born outside of the US, you legally can't run for president? I do know that, unfortunately, because yeah, so I was going to run, but. I reckon if you hold, if you own anything like that card, that you should be legally banned from holding public office. There like should you be. Are, if, if you've dreamed of being in power since you were thirteen, you are the last person that should ever be given power. I think like a lot of them have dreamt that, but yeah, there yeah. needs to be some kind of constitutional provision to to stop this what from happening it, again. What was the Greek uh, sortition? I think it was, which they literally just dragged people's names out of a hat, and that was our parliament. I don't know. We had it figured That's... out 2,000 years ago. That was that was the best one we've ever come up with. Well, it sounds like the sorting hat in Harry Potter. But, it, but I mean, that's the, the famous quote, you know, the first 200 names in the Harv- in the Boston telephone directory I'd prefer as my government. I don't know. I can't remember who said it instead of the Harvard. Oh, I definitely should know faculty. that because that is a famous quote. That's, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's annoying. Uh, all right, last story we got. Uh, there's a monolith. Well, there was a monolith. So this one swept the internet. Uh, this giant three meter, 3.4 meter tall monolith was just in the middle of the Utah desert. Absolutely nothing around to suggest that there should be a monolith there. Uh, hikers spotted it a couple of weeks later. It's gone. Pete, was it aliens? Was it... Uh, it's aliens, isn't it? I don't think it was aliens. I asked Hugh Tobin, our, uh, our previous manager here at the IPA, and he doesn't think it was aliens. So if he doesn't think it's aliens, it's not because... Um, He's a big Alien fan. So I don't think it was Aliens. I think it is someone sending us a message. I don't think it's like an accident. People are talking about, you know, it was part of a movie set or something. someone built something and accidentally, accidentally left it there. It's definitely someone sending us a message, whether it's, you know, not Aliens, but someone like a Unabomber type figure or some, you know, wacko on the edge of society. You know, yeah. I reckon another one's going to turn up. Now, what that message is, I'm not sure, but... I reckon it looked a bit like a speaker and I think it's related to the previous story about Ava King or whatever her name is. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's a message, something about don't muck around with the speaker. Yeah, the sacred uh, nature of the ox court. Ava Max was her name. Something to the do with that. Nat- you- yeah, all right. I just think like, you know, if it is aliens, what I don't get is why do aliens always send us the most boring messages? Boring. <laughs> Yeah, like it, it's never interesting. It's always like a crop circle in the middle of nowhere that we can't yeah. decipher, or a monolith that's three meters tall. Like, is that supposed to be intimidating? Like, we've got monoliths that are bigger than that. You're going to have to do slightly better if you want to get in our heads. Or just be clearer. Like, just say it. 
Yeah. I, mean, I know say, you might not know. Yeah, like in two weeks' time, we're going to blow up the world. Like, I, I want that in writing, then you have my attention. But in monolith stage, uh, it's nothing. If they don't know, I mean, if they can get all the way here from another galaxy, they can decipher yeah. English and, or whatever language and, yeah. and send us a proper message. So, I right, but is, I don't think it's aliens. That, that is it for the show this week. Thank you to James Lindsay. Go out and buy cynical theories. Uh, if you like this show, thank you so much for listening. Go leave us that review in iTunes. Uh, and we've got a whole bunch of other podcasts here at the IPA Podcast Network, so make sure you're listening to stuff like uh, Looking Forward and Viral Banter, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. See you, everyone. <laughs>